We're in John chapter 15, picking it up from the last couple of verses of chapter 14. Actually, picking it up from the very last of the very last verse of chapter 14. Rise, let us be on our way. It's strange that he would say that, and then they not get up and be on their way. He keeps going. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. Hmm. Hmm. So here he's starting a whole new discourse. A new discourse on his identity. We've seen it before many times throughout John's Gospel. <coughs> I am. I am. I am. I am this. I am this other. I am the bread of life. I am. I am. I am. Yet again, we have another I am passage. Connecting himself directly with God using God's name, the I am. And also identifying himself in a characteristic of himself. When he was, when he said, I am the bread of life, what was he talking about just in general? This short statement. When he said, I am the bread of life, I am the bread of heaven, what does he say? Feast on me. Yes. Eat me. Feast on me. I will nourish you. Come to me. Feast on my presence, feast on my love, feast on my word, feast on my spirit, feast on me, and you will live forever. Now he's going to say something different and the same. I am the true vine. Keep the imagery in your mind as you hear this. I am the true vine. My father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. Well, first thought is, well, so Jesus is the vine, all right? We understand that. And we've heard him talking about being in him and him and us already in the preceding chapters. So there's going to be some correlation to that right here with him talking to himself as the true vine. I'm the true vine. My father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, if we are the branches, and we are, well, we want to be bearing fruit, don't we? Certainly. Oh, huh. <laughs> Even though we're bearing fruit, however, there is still pruning that goes on. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed, pruned, literally, by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Hear the connection there? Mm -hmm. we, can, we, we draw all of our existence from Jesus. We can do nothing on our own or by ourselves. Just as we are called to feast on Christ, to feast on him, as the bread of heaven, as the bread of life, as the true bread, here we are called to realize that we draw everything that we are, our entire Christian existence, from Jesus, the true vine. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Ooh. That, now, there you go, Jesus. You're using this burning imagery for those who just sit back and do nothing. And that just makes me uncomfy. It fuels the fire and burns stuff. Yes, it does. Um, it does. 
<clears throat> the problem is, of course, taking it with hyperliteralism. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you abide in me and my words abide in you, we've heard this already. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. That's where, that's where God is glorified. That's the focus, not on being tossed into the furnace and burned, but on bearing much fruit, on staying within the vine, on drawing your sustenance from the vine. That's the focus. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We've already heard this in the last chapter about keeping his commandments. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now let's look at a comparison. Let's go back to John chapter 6. So you know, put a hand or a finger or something here in John 15 and go back to 6, 56, 57, where we were before many months ago. John chapter 6, 56. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I am them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. And then you run that as a comparison to verse 5 of chapter 15. Just listen. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Because apart from me you can do nothing. You hear the connection? It says the same thing. In John chapter 6, it's about eating Jesus the living bread, being nourished by Jesus the living bread, feeding on his word, feeding on his spirit, feeding on his presence, feeding on him in all that he brings to us as the living bread. In John chapter 15, he switched to a vine bearing much fruit. What is the fruit of the vine being spoken of here? Grapes. grapes. And what do grapes do, generate, create when you crush them into juice? Makes wine. Grape juice that turns into wine. Yes, it does. That's the two halves of communion, friends. Body in chapter 6. Blood in chapter 15, in a sense. Bread in chapter 6. Wine in chapter 15. So did he do that on purpose? Was John. John, the author of the gospel, did it on purpose. This is intentional. There is no question. The parallels are too tight to be coincidence. It is intentional. Now, it would have been even better had he taken chapter 15 and butted it right up against chapter 6. Wow, Jesus, that would have been even that would have been great. Who knows? Maybe he preached it that way at one point. We don't know. Two different we, occurrences. Though. We, we, yeah, exactly. We do not know. But the message is essentially the same. The message is essentially the same. Here it is again. Just sit and listen to, to it as I read from 6 and then 15. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever eats me will live because of me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Both of them speak about our total dependence upon Jesus to be about what we are called to be about, to do the life of the Christian, to live in faith, to do good works, to bear much fruit, to grow, to be a part of proclaiming the good news to the world. We do it because we are nourished by Christ. The very problem that the church has fought against 
within itself for generations and generations since the beginning is the desire to want to do the good works and be Christians without feasting on Christ. For whatever reason. Well, we don't need Jesus. We can be a, we can be a good social club. We can, we can do these good things just because they're good things and we're, we, we ought to do them. No. You can try, you can struggle, but eventually you're going to wither and die. No, you can do these things because you are nourished by Jesus. You are nourished by God. You are empowered by the Spirit of God to do them. The church often gets the cart before the horse. They tack Jesus on the back end as an interesting additive. But what's important is our good social mission in the forefront. Without Jesus feeding us in all the manifestations of the means of grace, we can do nothing. This is not just about communion. It is, it is a powerful image for communion, but it's not just about communion. It's about all the means of grace in all of their manifestations. We partake of the strength of God, and that empowers us then to do the work of God in the world. Questions, thoughts? It is no accident. I think the author intended for the connection to be there. His word utilization, the imagery used, the connection between Jesus and us, and us and Jesus, it's all there. Thoughts before we move forward? A lot of people get caught up on this stuff about the, the, the branches that don't produce getting chopped off and thrown into the pit, into the fire. I mean, they really love that. I've heard lots of Baptist preachers and TV and radio preaching on whoever does not abide in me is thrown, is, it, it, whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burn. And they gotta have a floppy Bible to do that too. They go way at you. That's what. That's where they. That's where they roost. And when they roost there, they miss the whole thing. That it's not about that. It's about what you do, how you live, whom you listen to, Jesus, God, and abiding in Him and Him abiding in you. And look at the. the Total contrary to that statement is what comes down here in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Back up in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. The focus is not thrown into the fire. That's a tiny fraction of the whole thing. And it is true. The consequence of not abiding in the love of God, the consequence of refusing to abide in the love of God, the consequence of refusing to, to partake of the bread of heaven, the, the consequence of refusing to be a part of the vine and receiving your nourishment from the vine and allowing the vine grower to prune you, to cleanse you, to guide you, to direct you, to control you, the consequence of it is, is that you're going to wither up and be useless. And eventually you'll break off. You'll die. You don't want that, do you? No. Well, then, then, then don't refuse to eat of the bread of heaven. Don't refuse to take your nourishment from the vine. Don't tell the Father, you don't need to prune me. I'm fine as I am. No, you need to be pruned. Everybody needs to be pruned. That pruning, the Greek word there is the same word for cleansing. It means not, it, it, I wish God would prune some of this off, but it, yeah. But it's to, to guide, to, to, to take, make sure that there's nothing extraneous that gets in the way of you doing what God wants you to do. It's a, it's a positive thing, not a negative thing. Sometimes pruning hurts a little bit. Getting on that treadmill hurts a little bit. But in the end, the positive cannot be denied. You grow. You produce. 
You flourish. You add to the vine itself. Think about it. The branches add to the vine itself. Allow the vine to grow. If Jesus is the vine and we're part of Jesus as the branches, as we grow, we enable the vine to grow and put on more branches. There's a very powerful positive image here all across the board. This is my commandment, verse 12. Now we've heard him talk about his commandments before. And it's been a few chapters and he's been repeatedly talking about, you must do my commandments, you must do my commandments. He said that in chapter 14. Now we're finally going to get to hear him say again, identify again what his commandment is. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Wow. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Another one of those extraordinarily famous verses from scripture. We've heard a lot of those very famous verses out of John, haven't we? Mm -hmm. Is there this nowhere else in the Bible? Just in John? As far as I know, this is the only place that says it quite like that. Read the King James for verse 13. 13? Yes. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Yeah, greater love hath no man than this. I mean, that, that's what you hear. When you've heard it quoted again and again and again, that's the kind of language you hear. And it's not said that way anywhere else but in John. Now, it's implied, it's talked about elsewhere, but in that particular way, that's where we get it from. And they've just finished the dinner, and of course, he, he's already told them, right, that, you know, I'm going to, uh -huh. this is it, this is the end, whatever. Uh -huh. And this is why he's bringing this up right here, I would think. Yeah. You need to be loving each other as I have loved you because I won't be here. You're going to have to do it for me. You're going to have to continue the vine. You're going to have to be my presence here with each other, essentially. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, I want to tell you something. That commandment, at first glance, you said, oh, wow, that's not that hard. <laughs> loving? Are you kidding? I mean... Not only no, but heck no, I'm not going to do that. That's the way a lot of people act. Or, or they'll take the contrapositive of it and say, oh, I'm not going to like you, but I love you. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it says I have to love you, not that I have to like you. Oh, if I hear that one more time from a church member, I'm sorry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to complain about church members. If I hear that one more time from a church member, well, the Bible told me that I have to love them, not that I have to like them. What makes you think you could possibly love them? Can't you love someone but still be annoyed by them? Oh, annoyed? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. I'm annoyed by my mother at times when I annoy <laughs> 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 That's what Yeah. Yeah. Don't you just love her to death? Bless her heart. Bless her heart. There you go. Bless her heart. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with recognizing that there are things that your loved ones do that annoy you, that you don't like. That's okay. You still love and like them. I mean, they want to, some people want to get super spiritual here. I'm sorry. To love them, you really kind of have to like them too. You really do. Or people will say, well, we love you anyway. Or we like her or him anyway. Mm. Depending on what, what they're doing. <laughs> or, well, I love their souls. What? I've heard that one too. Well, I, I don't like what they're doing, but I love their souls. Jesus didn't ask you to like what, what someone's doing. Jesus says, love them. Not just their souls, them. The problem is, we have people like cut off him with it. Ah, do we have to? <laughs> I don't want to. Are we supposed to love him? Yeah. Yeah, we're supposed You're to. Supposed love to. your enemies. <laughs> love those who persecute you. Do not hate them. Jesus. 
of us and not really it, it's one of that, that filtering thing uh-huh. we're always constantly accepting Christ and, and, and getting more and more like him it's and called so, sanctification yes okay thank you <laughs> I'm learning this stuff <laughs> good Methodist doctrine sanctification but but you know when you have that person over there that in, in the standpoint of just human life look at well, I wouldn't have nothing to do with him for nothing in the world yeah but then you have to go through that standpoint. But if you were perfect, if you had if you had been entirely sanctified, to use another Methodist concept, if you were as perfect as Jesus is already in your body here today, then yeah, you could and would love Gaddafi. Now I look at him on the screen and want to vomit, but I, 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 I kind of like that. He is huh? I think he's still devil. Are you supposed to love the devil? He's an idiot. Yes. Yeah, yes. Because really. he is evil. Who is evil? You don't. You don't love the evil. You love well, him. Let's 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 push it away just a little bit from current events. Let's use Adolf Hitler, one of our favorite people. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you love Adolf Hitler? Well, you don't love what he did. You don't love what he stood for, and you don't love the evil of the man. What's left? <laughs> <laughs> Tell you something. There was once upon a time a mother and a father for a child who was named Adolf, and that child was not evil. I mean, yes, I've seen the movie The Boys from Brazil, (laughs) (laughs) and I don't believe it. I don't think that he was was inculcated genetically or anything to be evil. I think that it it was bad responses to all these events in his life that he himself chose. I think that down deep inside even that evil man, I'm not gonna put quotes on it, that evil man, Adolf Hitler, there was a human soul tortured. And yes, I think even God, to the point of of his death, loved Adolf Hitler. I don't think God liked, I know God didn't like what he did, but I think God loved him. God so loved the world that he, that Jesus even died for Adolf Hitler. That's a platitude, but the reality is, according to the theology of the Bible, it's true. Mm-hmm. And we cannot comprehend how that is because we don't have true divine love as part of our very natures. It's slowly becoming part of us. We haven't reached that level of love. Let's, let's keep going. I'd like to get a little further on. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this. Notice that. No one has greater love than this. To lay down one's life for his friends. To actually die for your sisters and brothers, for your friends. There's no greater love than that. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, literally slaves, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. There you have a little bit of a qualification on that whole statement about how do you get, you know, and you if ask for whatever you will. Remember, we had that conversation back over here. Um, uh, verse uh, 13 of chapter 14. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14 of chapter 14. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. Notice the qualification for what in my name is over here. 
you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that, in order that, literally, in order that, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. So part of asking in the name of Christ is being a fruit-producing branch. Mm -hmm. If you're not producing fruit, don't be surprised if you don't get what you're asking for. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a qualification. It's written into the sentence. Read, read the King James there on, on verse uh, 16, please. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your, your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That, that expresses the connection there as well, even in the King James. In fact, it does it even better in some ways. Hmm. So that, in order that, what the, the, in order that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. It, it, that's directly connected to bearing fruit. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. Now he comes up with a warning or with the contrary. If the world hates you, now, he's told us to love one another. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You wonder why the world in, it, in, this in this utilization here doesn't receive the gospel, rejects it, denies it, and rejects and denies those who proclaim it and try to live it. It's because the gospel is not of the world. The world has its own objectives. The world has its own desires. The world has its own needs. The world has its own ways of going about and doing things. And they are contrary to, to the gospel. I mean, the world has its own commandment, its own golden rule. He who has the gold rules. Mm -hmm. The one who has power, money, authority, strength. They're in charge. Those are the rules, the world's rules. The rules of the gospel run contrary to that. The world, therefore, doesn't want to hear the rules of the gospel, the commandments of Christ to love one another. That opens you for possible loving one another makes you vulnerable. The world doesn't see that as a positive, as a virtue. This world sees that as, as foolishness. So of course the world hates it and hates those who practice it. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Well, before I spoke to them, they had no way of knowing that what they were doing was sinning. Now that I've spoken to them, they have no excuse. Mm -hmm. Oh man, that's a catch-22 I don't want to hear about. <laughs> Whoever hates me hates my father also. Now that might be a statement made almost to the church in John's day the church that's receiving this gospel, those who are not Christians who have, have articulated hatred for Jesus, what John is saying is, by saying they hate Jesus, what they're really doing is saying they hate God. Mm -hmm. how, how was John killed? 
Was he crucified? John is the only one who died of old age. Oh. John is the only one who died of old age. And Peter and John had a kind of a forecast of that. Yep. yep. They did, and we'll see that at the end of John's gospel. <laughs> Peter, of all, all the other disciples, were martyred. Only John died of old age. If I had not, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sin. But now that they have seen and hated both me and my father. <laughs> but now that they have seen and hated both me and my father. It was to fulfill the word that is written in their law. Those their law as if Jesus is not a Jew. That's that characteristic we see in the later layers in John's gospel where there's a differentiation cast between Jesus and the Jews or the disciples and the Jews. It's an artificial one. It was to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. Let's finish the chapter. When the advocate comes, whom I will, remember he's already talked about the advocate, the paraclete, the paracletos. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the truth, the spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. He'll support what I'm saying. He will bear what I'm saying is, is true. And you also are to testify because you have seen, have been with me from the beginning. So not only will the Holy Spirit, the Parakletos, come and testify on my behalf to you, but then you are to turn around and testify on my behalf to others. You're to spread this word. You're to proclaim this gospel. And guess what? The world's going to hate you as a result. Be ready for it because it's going to happen. All right. I have to pass out to you a chart. I was thinking about doing it today. Let's go ahead and do it. This is actually taken from a page. I decided not to recreate it since it was so clear here. This is taken from a page of the Anchor Bible Commentary, The Gospel According to John, uh, by Raymond E. Brown. A chart showing the parallels between John chapter 15, verse 18, through chapter 16, verse 4a, and the synoptic eschatological discourse. Now, that's just a mouthful. Synoptic eschatological discourse. That means the end times proclamations of Jesus found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All right? Well, why didn't he just say that? Because he's a scholar, and he makes his money by, by using big words. Now, let's go through chapter 16, verse 4a, so that we can then go back. I have said these things to you, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1. I have said these things to you to keep you from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think that they do so that by doing so, they are offering worship to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. But I have said these things to you so that when the, their hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. Okay, that's through 4a. Now, going back and looking at John chapter 15, verse 18 and following, we have the parallels between Matthew, Mark, and Luke on the one hand and what Jesus says there about the end times and what John is saying here about end times. That's interesting. I didn't know this was end times. Yes, it is. This is eschatological teaching. Jesus is speaking in verse 18 and following about the world's response at the end of time. Remember, all of this, the author of the Gospel, Gospel of John is writing this to people who were undergoing persecution at that time. In the 90s AD, the church was being persecuted. It was being persecuted by Jews on the one hand, being tossed out of synagogues, and is being persecuted by the Gentiles on the other hand because they no longer had the Jewish exemption for worshiping the emperor. So now you've got these Christians who had been leaning on the Jewish exemption from having to worship the emperor, who no longer have that exemption. Uh-oh, now we're stuck. We used to be Jews. Some of us were born Jews. Now we're no longer allowed the exemption because the Jews have disallowed us. 
Now we've got to worship the emperor. And since they refused to do that, what happened to them? Or lions, or being burned as light fixtures during the Circus Maximus races, that kind of stuff. Okay, so that's the context in which these warnings in this eschatological end times material is being articulated. Let's compare them. Look at the chart. You'll see it says, chapter 15, verse 18. The world hates you. The world hates you, has hated you, has hated me before you. Now look at it in verse 18. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. Direct comparison. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. You will be hated by all because of my name. And it's also repeated in chapter 24, verse 9. And it's paralleled, direct quotes, in Mark 13, 13, Luke 21, 17. Those are identical to the Matthew reading. So here we have a very similar statement. Chapter 10, verse 22 of Matthew. You will be hated by all because of my name. Paralleled with, the world hates you, has hated me before you. Okay, John chapter 15, verse 20. No servant is more important than his master. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. No servant is above his master. Okay, that's pretty clear. That's a parallel. Verse 20 again, they will persecute you. Chapter 10, verse 23, when they persecute you. Verse 21, they will do all these things to you because of my name. See the parallel above. Verse 26, the paraclete, that's the advocate, will bear witness on my behalf. Chapter 10, verse 20, the spirit of your father speaking through you. Verse 27, you too should bear witness. Chapter 10, verse 18, you will be dragged before governors and kings to bear witness. Chapter 16, verse 1, to prevent your faith from being shaken. Chapter 24, verse 10, the faith of many will be shaken. Chapter 16, verse 2, they are going to put you out of the synagogue. Chapter 10, verse 17, they will flog you in their synagogues. Chapter 16, verse 2, the man who puts you to death. Chapter 24, verse 9 of Matthew, they will put you to death. And of course, you got further parallels over here for Mark and Luke. Look at Mark for the parallel for being put out of the synagogue. 16, verse 2, over here in Mark. 13 verse 9, you will be beaten in synagogues. Luke 21, 12, delivering you up to the, to the synagogues. And see further also Luke 6, 22. See how the parallels? See, there are some pretty close connections. Now you can see it even more in some ways. And this really helps. But if you were to go over to Matthew chapter 10 and read those verses through and then go back and look at the echo in John, that, that's where you actually can hear it even more, but you can see it there as well. 10, just listen. 10, 22 and following. Uh, I want to pick it up at 20. Ah, let's pack it up even earlier, verse 16. Chapter 10, verse 16 of Matthew. See, I am sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of them. For they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. Then they will hand you over. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are uh, to say will be given to you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. And children will be, rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. We're paralleling that with John 15, verse 18 and following. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, world, remember the word that I said to you, servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they keep, uh, if they keep my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It was to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. When the advocate comes, he will send uh, to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who comes from the Father. He will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so they are offering worship to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. It's interesting to see there is a similar vein to be heard in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in John. This expectation for persecution. The difference is, is that in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't as strong. There was persecution in the Jewish community from the Jews who started throwing the Christian Jews out. The Christian Jews were still worshiping in the synagogues but they were proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. After 70 AD and the destruction of the Second Temple, in order for Judaism to survive, they had to consolidate. And so the multiple different denominations of Judaism essentially vanished. And the members of those other denominations ended up becoming Pharisees. And they took on the characteristics of the Pharisees and dropped their own distinctiveness. And this shift left no room for Christian Jews, Jews who are Christians. And so they were told, you either choose Jesus or us. And those Christian Jews who chose Jesus got thrown out of the synagogues, got persecuted, by got hated. And what is being said here is, they're not hating you. They're hating me. They're hating God. They think they're worshiping God by hating you and throwing you out of the synagogues and persecuting you, but they're not. They're demonstrating that they don't love God at all. Wow. So the context of this being said in John's Gospel is actually, in some ways, even more closely related to the persecution of the Jews being thrown out. And we can hear that being articulated really close to the events in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and heard about a little more bitterly after the fact in John. Thoughts? You sure give them something to think about, huh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you want to do this? Yeah, exactly. And they have no excuse for this because I have proclaimed to them the truth. I have done works in their midst. They have no excuse for this. If I had not come and proclaimed the truth and done good works, then they might have an excuse, but now that I have done that, sorry, they're toast. And, and here we have uh, Jesus putting, put into Jesus' mouth these warnings about what's going to happen by getting thrown out of the synagogue. So persecution here at this time was coming from both directions. 
The one that seems to be most bitterly remembered, though, is the persecution of being thrown out of the synagogues by the Jews who refused to accept Jesus. And by being challenged with this statement, you either choose Jesus or you choose the synagogue. You choose Jesus or you choose us. And those Christian Jews who chose Jesus, testifying by the power of the Holy Spirit within them, they were then persecuted. They were then hated. All right? And that was bitterly remembered by the 90s. Especially now because that event resulted in them losing their exemption, the Jewish exemption, from having to worship the emperor. And now if you don't worship the emperor, you're branded as a traitor and can be killed. The Jews just had to pay the tax. They didn't have to go worship the emperor. They had an exemption. But these Jewish, ex-Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who had been enjoying the exemption that the Jews had because Christianity was seen as a sect of Judaism, now suddenly they no longer have that exemption in the 90s. And now they're being told, pay your temple tax to the emperor and, and burn sacrifice to the emperor, or we're going to arrest you and throw you to lions and let gladiators take target practice at you and, and, and stick you on a stick and light you a fire and, and use you to light the chariot races. And unless you worship the emperor or renounce your Christianity, which was less important to the Romans, the Romans just wanted them to, to worship the emperor, but do their allegiance to the empire. Swear allegiance to the empire by worshiping the emperor. Because it does make you wonder that the people who are watching and witness it, it how come they were affected by that? To see somebody eaten by the lions? I think they were. There, it was a warning to them. They better be willing to salute the emperor too and to worship the emperor as well as your method. That was the Romans' way of proclaiming their allegiance to the emperor by paying your, your tax and by burning sacrifice to the emperor. You were, in effect, proclaiming your allegiance. Uh, in a polytheistic culture like theirs, it wasn't their objection to Christianity per se. Another religion wasn't an issue for them. They had no trouble with that. It was the fact that Christianity, like Judaism, said there's only one God and the emperor isn't it. And therefore, they were judged, the, the Christians were, were judged as being traitors. So long as it was just the Jews, they could handle that because that's a small little sect. They're annoying as heck, but they're set, they're tiny. But now that this Christianity thing is spreading out of Judaism and converting all these Gentiles, it's like a subversive movement within the empire. And that was what was resulting now in the 90s with the persecution from the Roman authorities under Diocletian. This, this persecution that was now coming up was, was really starting to cause them problems. And, and the church was coming under the gun big time at this point. And uh, it had been persecuted earlier, but those were aberrant events. They weren't full-fledged government policy. Under Nero, it was an aberrant event. It wasn't something that was common, nor was it very widespread. That happened in Rome only. This was happening across the empire. Wherever you were, if you were a Christian, you were challenged. Worship the emperor too, and you can be a Christian. Well, we can't be a Christian and worship the emperor. Well, you no longer have the Jewish exemption, so sorry, you have no choice. You either worship the emperor or you die. And there were a lot of Christians who took the alternative and worshiped the emperor too. And then the question became, well, had they violated their Christianity? And that's a whole debate. And it's actually informing some of what we've read already and what we're going to read yet to come. And it's within this context that this eschatological end times talk can be understood. You have to remember, they didn't project the end times off very far from them. They thought that this persecution was reflective of the coming of the end of time. The book of Revelation was written from the exact same context, using imagery from Daniel and elsewhere in the Old Testament. They said, essentially, it's right around the corner, friends, and God's going to establish a new kingdom and overthrow the Roman authorities. Just to, just, the Jewish expectation for the Messiah is going to be now fulfilled. All right. 
He's going to come. He's going to establish the kingdom of David. He's going to overthrow the Roman occupation and, and, and evil forces and establish a new heaven and a new earth. And it's going to be right around the corner. And, it's within, and, and that was written within this context, the context of that persecution. And whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke, written a little earlier, saw that a little further away, they nevertheless knew it was coming. The structure of the second temple was enough information for them to see that. But by the time John is writing, it's, it's hitting them really hard. And they're, sorry, they're pissed off at those Jews for getting thrown out of the synagogue and now putting them in this catch-22 with the Roman authorities. Be nice if we could still claim that exemption. That's what they're saying. But they can't. Because the Jews hate them, now the world hates them. All right? Rock and a hard spot. <laughs> exactly. Precisely right. And that's where we are. That's where we are right here. Well, what impresses me is the shoulders, so to speak, that we as Christians today are standing on. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. You know, you gotta make a decision if you know, you know you're gonna be persecuted or killed. We don't have to do that today. Well maybe in some areas not here we don't of the world. You think about some parts of the world, though, like like in Iraq right now, where Chaldean Christians are being persecuted and murdered just because they're in church. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.